Okay. What is this? Oh, broken it already. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm really glad my paper is today rather than yesterday. Um, not least because it's taught me that really I can't I can't have opinions on a text until I've seen it come alive and see some of the ways in which all those different ways that meanings can be actualised on stage and come together. So I'm glad I've had a chance to, to ruminate on last night. Um, and also I think what I'm going to say follows in that hermeneutic tradition of engagement with a series of interpretive negotiations that that, that we all do with a, with a text um, that David and Catherine and, and others were talking about yesterday. So hopefully what I'm saying comes along in that tradition. Um, I'll hopefully offer some suggestions of what those hermeneutic engagements with the text might actually look like. And ultimately I think what you'll be hearing are my own hermeneutic engagements with the text. So in that regard, I'd be really glad to get your feedback, hear your thoughts, um, as I kind of offer that up. Okay. So at the start of El Castigo sing my answer, the Duke of Ferrara and his men venture out into the darkness and they're on the hunt for female entertainment to satisfy the Duke before he's forced into monogamy by his impending marriage to Cassandra. And he's, the Duke's in disguise. The townspeople mustn't recognise him because despite the gossip of his debauchery, the security of his honour and his reputation depend upon being publicly recognised as a just and law-abiding ruler. Because unlike today, where we say that justice must be done and be seen to be done, in Ferrara, I think, simply to witness justice, to see your duke, behaving as you believe a duke should, is enough for his justice to be fulfilled. So this is, all, this is a play all about that slippery distinction between private sentiment and public action, between moral justice and its public fulfilment. The Duke's position requires him to take a wife, and in so doing he ensures justice for his people by staving off the threat of civil war. But to do so, he must do an injustice to himself to deny his very nature as a freedom-loving and free-living man. And when he learns of Cassandra's affair with his own son, and by contriving her death at Federico's hand, the punishment he enacts is the result of his private recognition of his hurt and anger at their betrayal. But the public justice that the people recognise is the righteous killing by the Marquis of the man who supposedly murdered Cassandra out of jealousy for a lost inheritance. If word were to get out about Cassandra's adultery, the Duke would become a cuckold in the eyes of his people. And by allowing public justice for a supposed murder, the Duke exacts his private revenge for their affair. So this is a play that deals in disguise. It trades in the difference between how we see ourselves and how we're recognised by others. And it causes us to question to what extent is justice, whatever that may be, actually influenced by the way in which we recognise and are recognised in return. 
as translators and readers and scholars of plays like Castigo, we too are involved in acts of recognition. We study the play, we interpret its movements and its themes, we make judgments about what it says to us about questions of honour, duty, respect and love in its historical context. And we see different meanings and different ways in which those meanings could be expressed today. And so what I want to suggest with this paper is that we can see these translational acts as a politics of recognition because they require us to make judgments about the play before us and to take a stand about how we think it should be interpreted. We associate the politics of recognition with Charles Taylor's essay on the damage that we can do when we misrecognise the fundamental traits and characteristics that people associate with their identity. And Taylor's thesis is that because we each depend upon positive reinforcement from those around us, our very identity, he says, is shaped by recognition or its absence. He gets this from Hegel and the idea that identity is intimately bound with how we're perceived and valued by others. So in the context of the play, just as the health of the Duke's public standing depends on the way in which he's viewed by his subjects, for Taylor, the health of our identity depends on the quality of its recognition. It's so important, Taylor says, that a person can suffer real damage, real distortion, if the people or society around them mirror back a, a confining or demeaning or contemptible picture of themselves. Non-recognition or misrecognition of identity can therefore be a form of oppression, imprisoning someone in a false, distorted or reduced mode of being. So entire groups of people can therefore be maligned on grounds of nationality, ethnicity, race, gender or any number of other delineators of collective identity. Nancy Fraser, for example, cites the case of what she calls a disparaged sexuality. So homosexual people, she says, suffer not only the heterosexism of societal norms that privilege heterosexual people over homosexual people, but also the homophobia that devalues homosexuality through discrimination. I'm not going to go any further with the issue of misrecognition and the degree of harm it can do, or the ways in which translators can or cannot misrecognise the texts they're translating. These are things I'm going to be grappling with in the article that I'm basing on this paper. But what I do want us to look at today is how Taylor presents his ideas as a way of securing personal justice through deliberate acts of public recognition. So we're, we're going to look at the mechanics of recognition and see what lessons there are for us as scholars and translators of Lopez's play. So the example I want us to look at is the first one in your handout. It's from Act 2, by which time the Duke and Cassandra are married, and Cassandra has now learned that her husband has been unfaithful to her. This is the first exchange we see her have with Federico since this has happened. I've given you the Spanish text from the Jones edition alongside three translations. What I want us to think about 
are the different forms of recognition that we as translators enter into when we approach the play. And we'll just think a bit again about Taylor's model and the idea of the despised sexuality. In Taylor's conceptualization, if cultural domination, um, for example, on the basis of sexual identity, is the harm, then recognition is the remedy that we can apply to it. And what he suggests is some form of symbolic change, a way of upwardly respecting formerly disrespected identities. So in the case of the despised sexuality, recognition strategies might support support for um, might include support for gay identity politics, aimed at reevaluating the status of gay and lesbian identity and treating homosexuality, in Fraser's words, as a cultural positivity with its own substantive content. So Taylor's politics of recognition is primarily concerned with affirmation of particular identities, of their equal worth in society, and all of it fueled by respect. And as a politics of equal respect, it requires us to start from the presumption that we as the recognising party and the other as the recognised are both on an equal footing. He calls this a starting hypothesis with which we ought to approach the study of another culture. Now, in the context of Castigo, a play which has been translated and performed in English a number of times, this is the first level of recognition the next translator to come along enters into. That by translating it again, the play has something to say to us. We're, we're entering into that politics of equal respect with the play. That it's not enough to rest easy with previous translations and that a new reading, new performance, a new interpretation can and should offer something unique. George Steiner would describe this as a hermeneutic trust that we place in the text as its interpreter. That as the latest in a long line of subjectivities to approach the play, we're saying that there is something in the play that continues to demand to be understood and recognised in different ways, but it continues to make that demand. In the example from Castigo, the hermeneutic trust we might place in this excerpt is the fact that when Cassandra says to Federico, tu en el suelo, conde no te humilles tanto, it's significant, perhaps, that in this exchange, after she's learned of her husband's infidelity, this is the first time she's ever spoken to Federico using the informal form of address. And yet Federico continues to use the formal register with her until much later on in the act. So perhaps the first level of recognition the translator might enter into here is to believe that there's something at work right now, that the air has changed between them that the tenor is relaxing and that the distance between them is closing. And last night, we saw that happen on stage and perhaps the distance was moving towards one of scolding Federico, one of anger with Federico, but we, we saw a change there um, after Cassandra had learned of what the Duke had done to her. So by suggesting that there's a deliberate change in register that demands to be recognised in translation, we're, like Taylor, affirming its presence in the text. And we're making a judgment about what it's doing and esteeming its performative value. So 
By necessity, as with hermeneutic trust, Taylor's politics of recognition starts from an assumption that there's a kernel of mystery external to ourselves awaiting proper recognition. And that requires a certain essentialism. By saying that there is something there to be recognised and by articulating what that something is, in this case the TV distinction between Federico and Cassandra, I'm already reifying their exchange uh, by perceiving their Spanish as a stable substance demanding recognition. And this is why Fraser says that this sort of recognition is all about calling attention to, if not performatively creating value around something. And again, the hermeneutic tradition helps us make sense of this. Because the act of understanding entails projecting ourselves into a world of potential meanings outside of our own private subjective sphere. And that's where the need for interpretation arises, from this failure to fit the, that external reality into our own way of seeing. It's that distance that separates us from the things we try to understand that creates the need to make that imaginative leap into the unknown. Taylor's politics is about putting that imaginative leap into action. So recognition really comes into its own, he says, when we demonstrate an active willingness to publicly validate a substantive presence outside of ourselves. So recognition is at base normative, because a judgment must first be made on what does and does not require valorization. Precisely because what we recognize isn't automatic. It's a decision-making process of critical evaluation. In the context of Lopez's play, this is the second level of the translator's recognition. As I lose my face. Because when we recognise a change in register in the text as the start of the sexual relationship between Federico and his stepmother, we're making judgments. We're constructing meaning in the text and we're following our conviction that it requires validation in translation. In his essay, Taylor is very aware of what this act of critical evaluation involves. It means deliberately siding with certain individuals and singling them out for positive valorization. And of course, to side with anyone, we must also decide who not to side with. If recognition means valorization, before you can recognize, you need some sort of overarching framework, a set of selection criteria against which you measure an individual's eligibility for valorization. In effect, even when intended as a positive action, recognition demands discrimination. When you select some people for special treatment, you also deselect others. And in the context of translation, this helps us explain not just the multitude of different translations available of a given golden age play. It also explains the very need for different translations in the first place, because every translation is the result of different judgments made by different translators of the same source text. And those judgments follow a critical evaluation as to what should and should not be valorized in translation. 
And all of these translational judgments are measured against various selection criteria. It's part of that team process that we've been talking about over the last couple of days. What the translator thinks is going on in the text. What they think is worthy of special treatment. What they think will and won't work. What the director thinks will and won't work. Together, what the performers work with in the text. What meanings are actualised. Everybody coming together into that process and entering into a series of judgments um, and creative interpretations of the play. So let's look again at, at the example from the text. Throughout Act 1 and most of Act 2, as I've said, exchanges between Cassandra and Federico have been very formal. But here, after she confides in Lucretia about how much the Duke's betrayal has affected her, this is the first time that Cassandra, as I say, uses the direct form of address when she talks to Federico. So as we enter into that second level of re recognition here, towards finding ways of upwardly valorising what, what we might consider the significance of this in translation, what would that actually look like? Well, we don't have the option, obviously, of a TV distinction in English. So grammatical substitution isn't what we're looking for. A politics of recognition means we're going to need to take a stand. We're going to need to use our own judgment to come up with some other form of symbolic action to signal what we've recognised into the text. So one way to advocate for our reading of the text is to bring an issue like this to the director, to the performers, to the stage team, to actively tell them of what we've discovered, to make a case for what we're trusting is taking place in the Spanish um, and to give our judgment as to the difficulty of substituting this in English. What you'd be advocating for is a way of upwardly valorising your recognition on stage, perhaps by changing the physicality between them from Act 1 to Act 2, <coughs> dissolving physically what the Spanish does linguistically. And I think we saw that last night, the way in which the performance between the two of them changed, the, the hierarchy the condescension was dissolved <coughs> and Cassandra started scolding Federico at that moment in a way in which there had been a physical distance until then. If we think specifically about the language for a moment, the politeness, the deference enshrined in Federico's words is echoed across all of the translations in your handout. But the playful tease in Cassandra's Spanish, no te amies tanto que te, que te llamaré excelencia, the informal register, tu en el suelo, it changes the air between them. In the booty translation, it doesn't feel like the tenor of the relationship <coughs> has changed. Rise, Federico, do not humiliate yourself by kneeling to me. Feels like there's a distance still there. In the Spanish, she asks him, ¿Qué tienes? ¿Qué has visto en mí? These are direct questions. Then in the context of our first level of recognition, we're now trusting that these direct questions are significant. That when she asks him a question in which she directly refers to herself in the same breath, she's pairing them together using her language. So she's actively changing the terms of their engagement through the way in which she brings them together with those words, que has visto en mí. The Edwards translation writes this as... But what is this? Why do you stare at me and tremble so? 
And perhaps this only maintains their distance. In the English here, she doesn't ask him a direct question. She doesn't refer to herself in the same breath as a question about his well-being. The Oaks translation, um, what's the matter count? You're shaking. And as with Edwards, avoids translating Cassandra's use of the verb kere as love. The booty translation has Cassandra refer to him by name. And that could be a powerful way to personalise what she says, to bridge that gap of formality we associate with the honorific count. A politics of recognition here might advocate <coughs> avoiding his name entirely until that very moment, to enhance that moment of electricity when someone we're attracted to uses our name for the very first time. So following a politics of recognition, we might instead deliberately, knowingly, opt for a single, simple and heartfelt direct personal question. What's wrong? No honorifics, no extraneous politeness. Just the first direct question she might ever ask him. I want to give you another example of how this politics of recognition might work in translation. That's on the other side of your handout. This is from the first scene in Act 1. And as I've said, the Duke and the men uh, are out hunting for women. And they're going from house to house, taking the Duke through his various nocturnal options. And none of them seem particularly great. And in the ex excerpt, Ricardo is demonstrating, describing one particular woman the Duke might like. But her husband could be a problem. And they're really not very polite about him. Ricardo says, Este cualquier visita cabizbajo o rumiador. To which Bebo replies, Rumiar siempre fue de bueyes. So there's this link being made between the husband and an ox. The translator's recognition, as I've suggested, consists firstly of that perspicacious, discerning and subjective act of understanding into what's going on in the text. And it's an act of trust. It's a belief that there's something of significance going on that's worthy of active valorization. The second recognition is when the translator performs that act of understanding by consciously activating whatever dramatic possibility it is that they find in the text. If you look at the Edwards and Booty translations, if there is a dramatic possibility uh, that we could recognize in translation from this example, it's maybe being foreclosed. The booty translation glosses over the reference to chewing, and both of them use the cabizbajo as a springboard to the husband's sullenness or dullness. The Oaks translation takes a different view, as we saw from last night, and instead offers the image of an ox with his head down chewing, and on stage you get the lewd joke coming off. This was a conscious decision on the part of the translator. And in rehearsal, the translator talked openly with the director about this, with the performers and the stage team, about what she actively wanted to suggest with that image. So as an advocating strategy, as I've suggested, recognition means taking a stand, speaking in place of and for the text. So what we gain from a politics of recognition as a critical lens through which to examine the translation of a play is a way to understand how translators can and do 
activate different dramatic possibilities in the text, precisely because interpreting the text and translating it for performance are political acts of judgment and discernment. Different aspects can be made to take on different meanings in different translations. Different interpretations, different degrees of recognition, equally valid but mutually discreet judgments on the play. Thank you. Thank you.